0: I should like to read to you this evening, as I read last Sunday evening, the account concerning Nathaniel, who became one of the disciples of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, the account of how he ever became a Christian. It's to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the first chapter, from verse 45 to the end of the chapter, Philip findeth Nathaniel. And saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, we began, as I say, a consideration of this important incident last Sunday evening, and uh, I call attention to it again because it seems to me that in this second half of this first chapter of this Gospel according to St. John, we have something that is of very great value to us. We are given an account of how uh, these first Christians became Christians, the first five or six of our Lord's Disciples who afterwards became apostles. Nothing in this world and in this life is more important for us than to know how to come to Christ. How to receive from him the blessings that he alone can give us. And here we see these men coming in many respects in different ways, but always coming to the same point. They all come to him. Some are sent after him by John the Baptist. He calls others In other cases, it's those who have already come who go back and try and bring their friends. There's a great variation shown here and elsewhere in the scriptures. But that's immaterial. That's very unimportant. The important thing is this coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say it does underline and emphasize certain things which we must never forget, but which are often misunderstood and which misunderstanding keeps many people from Christ and from the blessings of the Christian life. First and foremost, it's this. He himself is Christianity. It is to Christ they come, not to theories and ideas and philosophies. They come to him. We preach a person. And as I was showing last Sunday night, we preach a person who belongs to history. Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. That's the one, said Philip to Nathaniel. we start with concrete historical facts, and then we saw how these facts are in an amazing way the verification and the fulfillment of a number of Old Testament prophecies. Indeed, we saw that the whole of the Old Testament, beginning right away of Genesis coming through to the end, is nothing but a great prophecy concerning this person. It's all pointing to him. Very well, that is essential. If we don't realize that, well, it seems to me to be impossible for us to become Christians in any real sense of the term. Christianity is that which results when we have come face to face with Jesus Christ and know him. Then I emphasized particularly last Sunday evening uh, what it was in this man, Nathaniel, that helped him to come to this position. These very things that our Lord mentions about him. One is that he is indeed an Israelite. He was a man who was looking for salvation. He was waiting for the coming of the Savior, the Messiah. You know, no man ever becomes a Christian without desiring it. It may be very rapid in some cases, but it's always there. How can you possibly have salvation unless you've seen your need of it? Sometimes it takes people months and years John Bunyan tells us that he endured an agony in that respect for 18 long months, but some people, they come into a meeting quite thoughtless and heedless, and in the one and the same meeting they're convicted and converted. I'm not emphasizing the time element, but I am saying that at some point or another a man must have felt his need and he must be seeking for it. If you're merely a spectator and an onlooker, you'll never become a Christian. You've got to realize that you're involved, and then you'll seek it. An Israelite, indeed. And there was no guile in him. There was no pretense. There was no play-acting. He wasn't assuming a part. The man was desperately serious. He wasn't just coming for an argument. He was coming in order that he might find the Messiah. Very well, we've been looking at all that. But the thing that stands out, it seems to me so clearly, is this. Is this remarkable thing that was said to Nathaniel by Philip. Philip has his difficulty. You remember we looked at it. A very legitimate difficulty. He was a man who knew his scriptures, and that's always an advantage. And that, in a sense, put him into difficulties for a moment. There was an obvious explanation. But here's the thing. Philip, instead of arguing with him, says, come and see how can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Says uh, Nathaniel to Philip. And that's the answer. Come and see. Now, that's the word I want to uh, take up again this evening. We looked at it from one angle last Sunday night uh, when I tried to show what this meant in practice. But come, let us look at this as it presents us with the most important principle. It is essential, I say, that we should come to him, that we should really come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I mean by that is this, that uh, Christianity, the Christian salvation, is not something that can be proved and tested from the outside or from a distance. You see, let's look at it like this. There is our Lord over there. Now, here are Philip and Nathaniel talking together over here. Now, what uh, Philip is really saying to Nathaniel is this. Look here. While we're standing there, it's no use. We can stand here and argue for the rest of our lives and we'll end exactly where we began. Nathaniel, he said, come and see. Cross the road, come to him. There must be this encounter. There must be this meeting. There must be this coming to Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me use the words that our Lord himself used on one occasion. He was dealing with people who were always arguing. They say, look here, if you, if you are... Uh, What you say, you are. You say that you're the Son of God, you say that you're the bread come down from heaven, and so on, and you're making these great claims for yourselves. Well, now, they said, uh, if this, why not that, and so on. They've got their questions and their debates and arguments, and our Lord interrupted them and said, If he will do his will, you shall know of the doctrine, whether I speak of myself or not. That's it. It's exactly the same thing. He's saying in effect to them, look here, if you stay there in that attitude and with those arguments, you'll never get out of it. If you want to understand these things, you've got to commit yourself to them first. Do his will. Give him an obedience. Then you'll know. Or let me put it to you as it is put in the Old Testament. You'll find it in Psalm 34. Psalm 34. The psalmist is there again doing much the same thing. He can't understand how any of his fellow countrymen can stand away from God. He's sorry for them. He's enjoying the blessings of the godly life, and he sees them living in sin and trying to find their satisfactions in other ways and manners, and he comes to them and he puts his case before them, and then he presses it home with this great appeal— Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, you notice the order in which he puts it. He doesn't say, oh, see and taste. Not at all. It's, oh, taste and see. You know, you never will see until you've tasted. The analogy is perfectly obvious, isn't it? You're taken by a man into his orchard. He's very proud of his apple trees. He's got one tree in particular which he says is the best in the orchard. It produces the finest apple in the world, he said. The taste of this apple is simply indescribable and he waxes eloquent as he gives you an account of it. And you stand and say, well, it sounds very wonderful, but uh, I don't know, you know, I I, I don't uh, understand. To me uh, there are other uh, types and so on and you bring out your arguments and you go into the history uh, horticulturally of this a particular brand of apple, and so on and so forth, and you're not convinced that it is the best. Well, there's only one answer to you. Take a bite at it. You can't reason about a taste. You've got a taste. You've got to get your teeth into it and masticate it, and then you'll experience it, you'll prove it. Taste! And then you will see. But while you're just looking and hesitating and arguing, you'll never know, and you'll go to your grave without knowing the real quality of that fruit simply because you've not tasted it. Now, you see, this is a great principle, therefore, which is enunciated everywhere in the Scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New. And I am increasingly convinced that this is the thing, as I say, that accounts for the fact that so many people are denying themselves these blessings. There they sit or they stand and they say, you know, I don't quite see this and I can't quite understand. Now at that point there's only one thing to say. Commit yourself. Try it. What do you mean by that, says someone? Well, let me put it again like this. I mean this. Take this case. Assume it's right, if you like. Get on your knees and talk to him. Ask him for the Spirit. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Try it. Put it Put it into practice. Submit yourself. Commit yourself. Taste. You'll never see without tasting. Come and see, says Philip to Nathaniel. Because as long as you don't come and see, you'll never know. But now, I imagine somebody raising a difficulty even with respect to this. And let me admit at this point that I'm not quite sure in my own mind whether I'm right or wrong in considering this difficulty. But I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to consider it. May God forgive me if I'm wrong. And if I, like Philip, ought to say to you, look here, I don't care what you say, come and see. But let me take up this difficulty. I think it troubles many people. They say, but aren't you virtually by what you're saying advocating intellectual suicide. Aren't you asking us just to commit ourselves to something without our knowing what it is? Surely they say that must be wrong. God has given us minds and brains and understandings, and obviously he wouldn't have given them unless he meant us to use them. And not only that, they say. Surely the whole history of mankind shows very plainly and clearly that it is people who abandon reason and understanding and thought who generally make shipwreck of their lives. They drop into the latest cult that comes along. They think it's marvelous for a moment. Then they end in disaster, obviously. Because if you don't use judgment and discrimination, if you don't sift and weigh the evidence and and balance them, well, of course, you never know what you may be committing yourself to. And is it right for a man to jettison his intellect and his powers of reasoning and just to permit himself, as you are saying, just plunging like this without knowing what he's doing? Well, I think that that is a point of view that does uh, merit a certain amount of attention. So let me try to answer it by putting it to you like this. Take it now in the case of this man, Philip, as he handles Nathaniel. He's not asking him just to take a plunge in the dark, as it were. He says, no, no. I have told you that we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. He's talking about a concrete person, an individual. He's talking about one whose name is Jesus and who has been living in Nazareth and who was brought up by a man called Joseph and who has been working there as a carpenter. In other words, you see, this is not a call to men and women, just as I said, to plunge, as it were, into darkness. No. The gospel of Jesus Christ is based upon historical facts and events. Well substantiated. We worked out the argument last week. There you can work through your Old Testament. You can put down a list on paper, if you like, of the prophecies concerning him. Then turn to the new, and you'll find they're verified and fulfilled one after the other in the most amazing detail. That's what you're being invited to. Not into some kind of blank. Not so suddenly to let yourself go and to relax and to stop thinking. No, no, but to commit yourself to this person who's been described to you. Which is surely a very different thing. Come and see, come to him, come to this person. Now, that to me is a very important distinction. But let me give you some further reasons. There is nothing inherently irrational or contrary to reason in doing this. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. That the gospel... And its whole system is something which, if you read it and consider it, must impress you, if you're not too hopelessly biased and prejudiced, as being the most exalted view of life and the most exalted system of living that the world has ever seen. There is no morality on earth tonight higher than that which you find in the Ten Commandments and the Moral Law and in the Sermon on the Mount. The whole view of life that is depicted in the scriptures stands out preeminently in its glory and in its majesty in its purity as in a class absolutely apart. Now, that is the great difference, you see, between asking you to commit yourself to this and to him, and what the cults do and what many another agency does, because what they rarely do is to just ask you to stop thinking at all, they don't put any system like this before you, but they say in some shape or form, now you let yourself go and you'll begin to feel influences or you'll begin to have sensations and feelings and experiences. That isn't what I'm saying. The invitation of the gospel is to come to Christ, to come to his teaching, to come to all that he is and represents. There's nothing irrational in that. It's not irrational in the sense that spiritualism or spiritism is irrational. It's not irrational in the sense that Christian science is irrational, which says that there is no such thing as matter, and therefore you cannot feel pain because there's nothing there to feel the pain, and so on. That's irrational. But apply those tests and canons here, and I say there's nothing inherently irrational here, so you're not yet isn't it? Your intellect and your understanding. But I thought some someone that your case is that you must stop reasoning and come and commit yourself to it. It is. For the, for the two reasons I've just giving, given you, but let me go on to a third. Isn't it self-evident and obvious, the moment you really do begin to think about this, that obviously we are dealing with something here that is beyond our natural understanding? What I mean by that is that in this gospel we are confronted by a frank and avowed and an open assertion of the miraculous and the supernatural. We are discussing, we are talking about God, the infinite and the absolute and the eternal, God whom no man hath seen at any time or ever can see. God who is everlasting and eternal in all his attributes and powers and propensities. God. I rather suggest to you that what is to be irrational is to try to understand him or to try to arrive at him by a process of understanding. If you really think about it, you'll see at once it's impossible In other words, let me quote again a statement that I'm never tired of quoting. I think the modern man needs it perhaps more than any other. The statement of the great and mighty Blaise Pascal, probably the greatest mathematician that the world has ever seen, but who was a Christian, became a Christian. Pascal said this, the supreme achievement of reason is to bring us to see that there is a limit to reason. Now I say that that is correct. And that if you reason truly, you'll come to a point at which you'll say, well, I can go so far, but when I come to think of God, I'm a fool if I trust to my reason any longer. There's only one thing to do, I bow before him, I humble myself, I worship. You see, the very character of the truth that we are considering, in and of itself, should demonstrate to us how impossible it is, rarely, to comprehend it with the natural human understanding. There it is, you start with God, and then you come to this person. And what we preach is this, you see, that in that one person there were two natures. He was God, and he was man. Two natures in one person. Yet they were unmixed, they didn't fuse together. There, he's God, he's man. God and man, the God-man. Now, uh, do you think that you're being reasonable and rational by trying to understand that? The business of preaching is not to ask us to understand things like that, but to believe them and to submit ourselves to them. There he stands before us with this tremendous claim. I say, stop trying to understand. Stop standing back there. Taste and see. And then as a final argument at this point, let me put this to you. And to me it's a very cogent and a very powerful argument. We have here speaking to us a great and a mighty testimony. The testimony of the Christian Church for nearly 2,000 years. Here is a body of people that have come to him that have surrendered to him, that have tasted and have seen. Can you dismiss them all as irrational creatures? Look at them together. Look at them singly and individually. Look at the mighty figures that stand out in the history of the Christian church. Lectures are being given on these people here on Friday on Wednesday evenings at six thirty, come and listen to them. These mighty men of God. Now I say, as we are asked to come and see, or to taste and see, and as you feel am I going to plunge into something I know not what, and I'll have no longer any control and I don't know what'll happen, I say the answer is look at the people who've done that. Can you dismiss them all? I'm reminded of a story, which I think puts this very well, of a a certain professor of theology who lived in the last century, and he always had particular difficulty, as I'm afraid we must say in strict accuracy. Most professors always have, with the first year students. We always know much more in our first year than in any other year. Well, this man had that difficulty, and he could tell by the faces of some of these young gentlemen that they really didn't believe the Christian message, the Christian faith. They were philosophers, and they knew their philosophy. Of course, this simple evangelical belief was all right for illiterate people, people who hadn't had the advantages that they'd had, and so on. He could see that that was on their faces, so he was very fond of saying something like this to them. A gentleman, he used to say, a faith and a belief that was good enough and that became everything to a Paul, to an Augustine, to a Wycliffe, to a Luther, to a Calvin, to a Knox, to the mighty succession of Puritans, to a Whitfield, to a Wesley, to a Gladstone, to a Newman, is, I suggest to you, at least worthy of your respectful consideration. And there it is. You see, if you say, "Ah, oh, I can't do this, because to do this is to commit intellectual suicide, and I'll become a fool, I'll become a psychological case, I'll go soft and so on, the answer is, look at the men who've done it. Were they fools? Were they psychopaths? Why, the answer is that they're the greatest men the world has ever known. The greatest benefactors that humanity has ever seen. These men stand out in every respect as giants. Not only great spiritual giants, but intellectual giants. Great in every respect. And yet they did this thing. They all became as little children. They all agreed with Pascal. They came to a point in which they said, I can reason no more. I'm failing. It's impossible. It's obvious. What can I do? I must become, as Christ said, as a little child. I submit. I give in. I come. I want to see. Come and see. Now then I say that that is the great crucial point to which we must all come. There comes a point, I say, when you stop arguing and debating and putting up your ifs and buts and all your queries and all your wonderful cases and you listen to the invitation, come and see. It's bound to come. That stage is inevitable. There is a moment when, like the prodigal of old, we've all got to rise up and go home. And if we don't, we'll remain in the misery of the far country and we'll spend our time with the husks and the swine until we die in misery and wretchedness and failure. Arise, come, and see. Very well, let's go on to my next point then. What is it you find when you do come? Now this passage is really eloquent about this. You know what you'll find? It's a remarkable thing, this. It's a glorious thing. The first thing that you'll find when you come to Jesus Christ is that he knows you individually. Look at it here. There is our Lord standing. And uh, we are told Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. He knows him. He knows Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is astounded and amazed at this. How now thou me? Oh I do want to emphasize this because I say again, thank God this is one of the most glorious things about the Christian position, the Christian message. You're not dealt with as a mass or as a mob in the Christian faith. That's the whole trouble in the world today and in life today, isn't it? Mass mob. The individual is almost disappearing entirely out of sight in the modern world. We're all numbers, ciphers, specks in a great mass of humanity. We are dealt with en bloc. All right, you see it everywhere, politically, industrially, it's the great thing everywhere. People no longer play football themselves. They sit in great crowds and watch just a few men doing it. The crowd, the mass, the mob. Thank God, here's somewhere where I'm dealt with myself. I'm an individual. I'm a man. I'm an entity. I'm a personality. Or to put it in another way, Christianity is not a matter of a general truth or a mass of general ideas. The central glory of this is that it's personal. And the first thing you discover when you go to Jesus Christ is not only that he knows you, but that he's interested in you and concerned about you. Now, I mean by that that he's really not interested in your ideas. He's not interested in your thoughts and arguments. He's interested in you. That's the thing, you see, that Nathaniel discovered. And he's not the only one who made the discovery. There's a great deal about this in this gospel according to St. John. If you go on to the fourth chapter, you will find there that wonderful account of how our Lord met the woman of Samaria, so-called. And you see the same thing happened there. Again, the thing that astonished that woman was that he knew her and knew all about her. And he wasn't interested in our arguments and all our debating facilities and so on. No, no. He was interested in the woman herself and in her own soul. And you know that is the central thing about this gospel. Now, am I making my point plain and clear? You know there are many people in this world who never face themselves. They never realize their own individuality and identity. They've lost it. It's a very easy thing in this world to lose yourself in your ideas and in your thoughts and in your arguments and disputations. And the whole time, you see, you put these up as a camouflage to hide yourself behind them. And you're always arguing as it were outside yourself, and you yourself never come into it. But Christ is concerned about you. Do you realize the significance and the importance of that? Do you know, my friend, a day will come in your life and in your history when your thoughts and views and ideas and arguments and all the rest of it will be absolutely immaterial and you'll be leaving them behind you, but you yourself will be passing through death and you'll be going on to eternity. You You see, you and I are not a mere collection of ideas. Our ideas come and go, don't they? They change. We are very changeable. But the important thing is I myself. I am an individual. I am alive in this world. I am passing through it. I am going through that death that is inevitable. I go beyond it. I myself. Thank God the Lord Jesus Christ is interested in me. Not in things about me, but in me. Oh, I could illustrate this to you endlessly. There's nothing more insulting in this world, is there, than to feel that people really are not interested in you as such, but in certain things about you. If a person gives you the impression that he's not really interested in you, uh, but he has the interest that he seems to have in you because he's interested in your family, doesn't it deny you? Rightly so. You don't like a person who's only interested in you because he happens to know and like your father? You want him to be interested in you, and you have a right to. Or what are the men who shows very plainly that he's really not interested in you, but interested in your money, what he can get out of you? Well, now that's life, you see. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he cuts through it all. He's interested in you yourself, and he makes this immediate contact. Nathaniel suddenly found that here is one who knows him. He didn't know, he hadn't heard of him before. And how has he heard of me? He says, But he knows me. And as you may feel in this world tonight that you're forgotten and neglected, you say, who am I? What's it matter what happens to me? I'm just cannon fodder or something like that. I'm just one to be dealt with in the mass and in the main. And you say, is anything worthwhile therefore? Does it matter what I do with my life? Whether I go up or down or live or commit suicide? Does anything matter? Here's the answer. He's interested in you. We're living in this great city of London, this mad city with its millions of people herded together in this idiotic manner. And people like to get lost in the crowd, as it were, until things go wrong and then they feel lonely and see the crowd passing by. Laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. It's true, isn't it? So thank God for a blessed person. Who sees you alone. And who knows you. And who's interested in you as an individual. Yes, but let me hurry on to the next thing. He not only found that Christ knew him. He found that he knew all about him. Listen to it here in this 48th verse. Nathaniel said unto him. Whence knowest thou me? How have you arrived at this knowledge? And our Lord... You see, gives him his answer. But let me emphasize this. Nathaniel's question proves that. He had realized at once that the Lord knew him with a strange particularity. And our Lord gave the answer that we have already seen. But there is a further answer. Listen to this. Have you seen its significance? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. What's he mean by that? Well, this is the the most remarkable thing of all. This was the thing, of course, that opened the eyes of Nathaniel, as the record tells us. What it means is this. It was the habit and the custom of the devout and religious Jews to go and sit under the fig trees in order that there they might read the word of God and meditate and pray to God. The fig tree was covered with its leaves, you see, and they came down pretty low. It was a sort of secret chamber into which you could enter. Nobody would see you. You were shut off from the world. You were absolutely alone. And there you were with yourself and your own thoughts whatever you might be doing under the fig tree and what our lord tells nathaniel here is this Do you know nathaniel i saw you when you were there under the fig tree it might have been the same day it might have been the previous day he is clearly referring to some particular special thing that happened when nathaniel was under that fig tree i can't tell you exactly what it was nobody knows We can speculate about it, but it seems to me to be quite clear that it was something like this. This man was an Israelite indeed. He was seeking God. He was seeking for the coming of the Messiah. He was waiting for salvation and for deliverance. And he'd gone there. He may have been reading the prophets. And here he prays to God and cries, how long? And I believe that God said to him as it were, there's no need to wait any longer. I've sent him, he's come. And then our Lord tells him, I know exactly what happened when you were under that fig tree. I can tell you about your sobbing and your crying and your weeping and your prayers and your pleading with God. I know all about it and I know what God my father said to you. I saw thee when thou wast under the fig tree before Philip ever called thee and invited thee to come to me. Well, there it is, whatever it was, this is the principle. That the Lord Jesus Christ knows all about us. There is nothing about us that is hidden from him. Here again is a great statement in the scriptures from beginning to end. Do you remember poor David, the king of Israel? Who had committed that terrible sin. First of all, adultery, then murder. And he went on thinking everything was all right. But God had seen it and knew all about it and... He sent his servant Nathan the prophet to speak to David and to convict him of his sin. And David, having seen it all, sits down and writes his 51st sermon. This is what he says. In the agony of his heart, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. You know all about me. It's no use my trying to hide or to conceal anything. You know all about me. That's the glory and the difficulty in a sense. Truth In the inward parts, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, says the psalmist again. And here you see again, this woman of Samaria finds out exactly the same thing. There she is in her cleverness, arguing with our Lord about religion and about worship. Whether you should worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem. How you should do it. And so on. Who who did this well belong to? Was it the Samaritans or the Jews? And so on and so forth. When our Lord cuts across it all and says, woman... Go fetch thy husband and come hither. And the woman said, Sir, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, Thou sayest right, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou Truly. And you remember how the story ends? The woman of Samaria, leaving her water pot, runs back to her village and says, Come, see a man that has told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Come and see this man, she said. He knows all about me, he's read me like an open book. I was having a brilliant argument with him about religion. And then he suddenly opened the book and revealed that he knew all about my immorality and the wrong life I'm living. Come and see him. This must be the Christ. Ah, yes, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in his fourth chapter. The word of God is quick and powerful and mightier than a two-edged sword cutting even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, for there is nothing that is hidden from his sight with whom we have to do all things are naked and open. Unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And then add your 139th Psalm to it, which we read at the beginning. Where shall I flee? Nowhere. Heaven, hell, east, west, darkness, light, impossible. He's everywhere. He knows all. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou knewest me before I was formed in my mother's womb and in the secret parts of the earth. My dear friends, if you come to Christ, you know you'll discover that. You'll discover that he knows all about you. And that is why, of course, people evade him and avoid him. He knows all about your life. He knows all about your sins. And he really isn't interested in your arguments, but he's interested in you and in your life and in what you've done. He knows you can talk cleverly, but he knows the secret sins you commit. Some sins are not secret. They're committed with others. Some sins we commit alone, and he sees them all. When you've drawn the blinds and locked the door, he reads your thoughts, your imaginations, your lust, your passions. He knows all about you. And he'll let you know that. And he'll hold it before you. But thank God he doesn't stop at that knowledge. He knows our misery. He knows our sadness. He counts our tears of sorrow and of remorse. He knows our hopes and fears. He knows all about our longings and our desires. He's watched us struggling to live a better life and failing, taking our resolutions and breaking them. He knows all about it. And there is nothing about us that he doesn't know. Do you remember how the Apostle Peter had that experience a little bit later on than this? He and some others had been out fishing one night and they'd caught nothing. Our Lord tells them, go back. Go back again to the same place, throw the net on the other side. And they went back, and they caught so many that their net broke. But at last they were able to bring the ships in and to land most of them. And do you remember the effect that they had upon the apostle Peter? He fell at the feet of Christ, and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He felt that he was being read as an open book. Other people felt the same. Do you remember the people who owned the Gadarene swine? And do you remember how our Lord drove the devils out of the men and sent them into the swine and they rushed over that steep place and were drowned in the depths of the sea? Do you remember the reaction of the Gadarenes? They besought him to depart out of their coasts. Why? Well, they said, this man can do everything and he knows everything. He's reading us as an open book. Get away, they said. We can't stand it. Oh, foolish, tragic people. They realized that he knew all about them and all about their sin and their illicit trade and all the rest of it. But they didn't realize that he knew also their need, their heartache, the heartbreak. He knows everything. What a wonderful thing this is. That I am known thoroughly and absolutely and altogether. Very well the moment I discover this, you see. I know it's no use trying to hide anything. It's no use concealing anything. It's no use bringing in my butts and saying, but after all, I do this or that. He'll give you a thousand things that you don't do. And when you tell him about your good deeds, he'll tell you about your vile and ugly, foul thoughts and all your evil imaginations and the desperate, despicable things you've done. We've all done them. He'll put them all before you and you won't have a leg to stand on. He knows all about us. You'll find that but thank God, as I close, I'm privileged to say this also, that you'll find that he has a marvelous sympathy. He's full of encouragement and understanding. Can you imagine, can you picture the feelings of Nathaniel as he came and heard the Lord saying about him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. What an encouragement. What drawing power. What sympathy. How he praises him. How ready and glad he is to do so. Ah, but you and I may not perhaps be able to say that we are Israelites indeed, in whom is no guile. We may have lived a sinful, selfish, godless, worldly life. It doesn't matter if you have felt the faintest glimmering of a sense of sin and a sense of shame, if you have felt for a moment you'd like to know him and to belong to him and to be blessed by him, I assure you that if you listen to this invitation and come and see him, if you take a single step in his direction, you'll see him smiling upon you and you'll hear him saying, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. I don't care whether you're in rags in a moral sense. I don't care if the vilest filth of the gutters of London immorality is hot upon you this evening. I don't care. You can come just as you are and waiting not to rid your soul of one dark spot or blot. Come as you are. Take a step in his direction and he'll extend his arms and he'll say, him that cometh unto me, whoever he is, wherever he's come from, I will in no wise cast out. And then you see, when you've heard him saying that and when you've realized the way in which he knows you and reads you and gets rid of all the camouflage and Reveals you to yourself as you are. When you see all this and see that face, that smile, and those extended arms, you, like Nathaniel, will come to the only conclusion to which one can come, who comes to him, and that is, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. There's no other explanation. Look at him, my friends. Come to him. Look at the portraits of him in these Gospels. Can you explain him in any other terms? As has often been pointed out, if he was only a man, well, then he was a blasphemer. If he was only a man, he was a lunatic. Because he said, before Abram was, I am. He stood up and he said, ye he have heard that it has been said by them of old time. But I say unto you, he says to men, he doesn't hesitate to say to a man, sitting like, like Matthew at the receipt of customs, follow me, leave everything. A man who says that, I say, is a fool. If he's only a man... He's a lunatic. He's possessed. But can you say that he's only a god? Of course you can't. He's patently also a man. And you know, in 1956, we are able to say without any fear of contradiction that it is now quite established and proved that all the attempts that have been made so often during the last hundred years to explain him in any terms whatsoever except that he is the God-men have failed and have failed completely? Answer this question. When did you last hear anybody speaking or talking about the Jesus of history? You know, 30 and 40 and 50 years ago, you'd hear very little of anything else. Then they were quite sure that he was only a man. So they took away all the miraculous and all the supernatural. They took away all his eschatology and all about the apocalyptic. He was just a very good man, a great religious genius, a wonderful preacher, nothing more. A man they'd reconstructed the Jesus of history and they were preaching him and his social gospel. But they don't do that now, you know. They can't. Scholarship alone has made it impossible. They've had to admit that if you take out the miraculous and the supernatural, well, you haven't a person left at all. It's a caricature. So that even this much-vaunted scholarship has at last, you see, had to make this confession. He can't be explained in any other way nor in any other terms. Come and see him. Commit yourself to him. Having considered this picture, this case, well, go to him, I say. Tell him how you feel. Ask him to reveal himself. Say you want to know him. You want to be blessed by him. You want to belong to him. Commit yourself to him. Ask him by the Spirit to make it plain to you. Do that. Taste. And you will see. And you will say to him with Nathanael of old, Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the Savior. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number 100. 100. Thou Son of God and Son of Men. Beloved, adored, Emmanuel, who didst before all time began, in glory with thy Father dwell. Hymn number 100. We thank thee that thou hast said him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. We thank thee that thou dost receive us as we are, and that receiving us thou art able to cleanse us, and to reconcile us unto God thy Father. O God, we pray thee by thy Spirit. To reveal the blessed truth concerning thy dear Son. To all who hitherto have not known him. That they may come to him and find pardon and peace. And rest to their souls and acknowledge him as their Lord and as their God. And now. May the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore amen